The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is one of the world's top persuasion experts, Kevin Hogan. Go to kevinhogan.com to find out more. Kevin, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, Joey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? All is good on this side of the water. Great. Kevin, can you tell us how you got into persuasion and influence? The industry of influence. It was, it's just a fascinating thing for me. I was in, it, it, as a kid... I raised money for um, our family by selling things, whether it was you know newspapers or greeting cards. Uh, as I got older, I became fascinated in the study of influence in college. There weren't a lot of uh, classes directly related to influence, but there were various speech classes, nonverbal communication classes, human behavior classes, and psychology. And as it as I became an adult, it became obvious that if you could influence, you know, you could really move the world. And that really was what it was all about. I just really wanted to do stuff that was fun, that was constantly evolving. And boy, that is the case with with influence. Okay, so uh, Kevin, in this interview, I'd like to get some tips from you on how we can be better influencers. The first thing I wanted to cover was if we're going to try and influence, then we need to know what drives people. I know that you talk about some core human drives and desires in your teachings. Could you let us know a little bit about that, please? Sure. When you're born, you're you're basically programmed with um, some basic fears and some just just some basic genetic predispositions. So, for example, you're born with the fear of falling. You're born with the fear of heights. Everybody has these these fears. Everybody, mm-hmm. and but but we're also born with other genetic predispositions. Some people are born with a a predisposition to be altruistic. Some people are born with a uh, predisposition to be. Uh, independent or vengeful and vengeance is an extremely important driver it sounds very wicked and it can be very wicked but it's it's, it's also what drives um, competition and us to be better than ourselves better than the other guy so vengeance and and uh, the desire to, uh, to have sex reproduced to uh, some people love to eat food I have many friends who are just connoisseurs of food and when you know which of these genetic drives and there's a lot in between what I just said and where I'm going but but if we can just make the leap we don't have to talk about all how it all evolves but basically if you know which drivers are driving a person's behavior you can almost get inside of their mind and know what they're thinking and how they view you so if you're writing a piece of copy for an ad or or uh, creating a marketing piece uh, uh, making a sale you can really pretty much if you think about Who's your audience? What are they? What are they thinking? What's driving their behavior? Once you know that, you can almost read their mind and almost know what they're thinking and how they're going to respond to any given situation or to any given comment. So that's pretty valuable information. And the sixteen drivers. And if you want, we can we can look at those individually real quick if you want to. Would you? Yes, please. That would be great. Sure. The, the probably the most important driver that there is there, it's it's kind of a coin flip between three and that would be the uh, the flight fight response. We're driven for tranquility. We don't want to be 
get nervous, we don't, don't want to be anxious, we don't want to be on the spot or in any situation where we're uncomfortable. So that desire for tranquility is huge. And then there is the desire to eat. And thank God we have that or else we, we die, right? <laughs> yeah. and, all right? And so you've got to have that. But in some people, that switch is turned on, and Americans are particularly good at this. <laughs> and it's, it's really turned on. We fill an elevator sometimes all by ourselves. So, so there's that. And, and then, and then the, the desire for sex, the desire to reproduce, whether it's for children or just for practicing, uh, those, are, those are the three big drivers. And if you know... Like if you know that Kevin Hogan is driven by the desire for um, sex or romance or sensuality, but not the desire for eating, you have a lot of leverage with Kevin Hogan in a conversation. Okay, so those are the those are the core three. After that, you have um, second tier. We'll call them desires, and that is we we mentioned the uh, the desire to be competitive. So if if you're writing copy, you realize already that it takes a lot of information and a lot of um, you got to hit a lot of buttons well to compel someone else to say yes to you when they could go with the bigger brand and with a, with a different brand that might be already very, very well known to them. And so we use copy, and vengeance is one of those drivers that we use in copy to, um, to, to capture attention. And, and I assume that you do a lot of work with people who write copy. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so if if I'm if I'm writing copy, or if one of your listeners is writing copy, we know we know something about ourselves. We're competitive people already because we're competing to get attention. We're competing to get the uh, the interest of other people. That means we're go getters. We're winners. We're competitive. We're aggressive. We, we uh, well, we'll get whatever's necessary, and we view other people who don't want to do, say, writing copy and marketing and sales. We view those people. And this is part of the vengeance driver as conflict avoidant. We view them as maybe turn the other cheek kind of people, very nice. But here's how they view us, okay? They view us as um, aggressive and competitive and angry and always needing to win. And so we've, we've been able to distill down each of these 16 drivers to where, okay, if, if Kevin's driven by vengeance, and that is true, by the way, so I know how I view myself and I know all the people think like me in this one area. They're all pretty much the same. They're all competitive, all aggressive. We look at other people, frankly, as losers often. They're not really assertive. Um, they're kind of failures. And when you know that about that person, you know the buttons to push. So, you know, can have the people out there making all those great products and services, and there's nobody to buy them because they just won't go out there and sell. And all of a sudden, you're just shaking your, nodding your head up and down going, yeah, you know, that's right. There's the drive to nest. This is most commonly um, a, 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 a woman's instinct, but it can very much be turned up in men as well. The drive to nest is huge, and among women, this is probably the second biggest driver of behavior. This is uh, the, the person who has the family. If they don't have the family or they're not planning, then they probably don't have the drive to nest. There's a lot of people who don't have children. If they do, then they look at themselves as being responsible and domestic and cocooners, basically, and they look at other people that don't have children, for example, that don't nest as being selfish and irresponsible and immature. They're unaccountable. There's the, um, there's the desire to connect with other people. That's huge, not in the sexual way, but in the, the uh, more of a friendship way, okay, as, as a uh, 
some people are just driven to connect. And then there's my son who would prefer not to connect with anybody face to face, okay? He's a very, a very private person. So if I know that, you know, that the way you sell him to go out is not to say, hey, son, we'll meet a lot of cool new people. Because it's like, cool, dad, you go. Have a great time. I'm staying home. So you, you got to be careful of how you, you use levers, levers that we would think might be helpful for, for selling or for marketing purposes or persuasion is often the exact opposite because we get the driver backwards, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the next one would be seeking power. Not everybody has the, the, uh, the drive to seek power. In fact, m most don't. Only about 10% of people have this one switched up, if you will. But power is the ability to influence the behavior of other people. That's kind of what I do in my life. I teach people how to be more influential, and, and so do you in a way as well. The, um, the next one in this second tier is, is uh, status. Status is is really a powerful driver, driver, and if if you're using it in persuasion, it, the people who who are driven by status, they see themselves as prestigious, as important. They're uh, they're worthy of recognition. They they want to be prominent. They see themselves as constantly moving up in the world. They look at other people as insignificant, unimportant, low class. They have bad taste. And the social climber, the person who is driven by status, that person will do a lot to look good to a lot of people. Really powerful driver. Um, seeking independence is another of the core drivers. That's, a, that's absolutely huge. People who are driven by independence want to be self-sufficient. They don't want the government to take care of them. They don't want health care. They, 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 they don't want all of this stuff out there. They don't want free anything. They want to work for it. They want to be reliable, self-reliant. They want to be, um, well, they, 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 they don't want to be herded up as part of a group. They don't want to be sheep. And they look at other people who, who aren't like them as being immature and weak and dependent uh, needy people, and it really is bothersome to the person that has that drive for independence. And there's um, one more of second tier of the second tier desires, and that would be curiosity. This is the Sherlock Holmes um, effect, and the Sherlock Holmes effect, the desire for curiosity, is these people want to know what things are made out of. They're curious about the forms and um, shapes that they are curious about the beginnings and the causes of things and why did things happen like this and where's the Higgs boson particle and is it really the God particle? Do we finally know the secrets of the universe? Those are people who are driven by curiosity, right? Some people are like, who cares? What do we, <laughs> what do we need to know this piece of information for? But uh, there's a lot of people who really want to know that. Ah, one more on the second tier. That would be the drive for acceptance. People, there's a lot of people out there that are driven to be accepted by people in their group. These people see themselves as um, oh, lacking in self-confidence. They're not very assertive. They look at other people as being conceited, too confident, slick. Uh, it's a very powerful driver because needing something from somebody else means that we sort of have to um, become second to them or sub subjugated to them quite often. There's the desire to have honor. Honor is a very powerful driver. People go in the military for honor. They're very, uh, they, they pay all of their taxes because it's honorable. They tend to be loyal. These people are principled. They're moral. They have high character. 
that's that's now we're into the second uh, the third tier desires here. You've sure. got the desire for order. People want to have things neat and t tidy and be in control. They want to be socialized. The next one would be the desire to save, to collect, like a squirrel. The the desire to collect or to save or to accumulate is a really important driver for people to have if they want to have long-term success. So if it's turned up in people, you'll notice that they collect things. They collect stamps. They collect coins. They collect books. They collect gold. They collect they collect stuff, and they might have multiple copies of the same thing. These people see themselves as very conservative and very frugal, so when you're writing ad copy to these people, you want to make sure that you hit those buttons that they're being thrifty and that they're, that they're, they're planners. These are people who plan ahead and they look at other people if you, if you want to really sell this person you say hey you know all those people out there that are ir irresponsible and they're living only for today they're just wasting wasting their life because it's all going to come back to hit them in the face and boy does that trigger with the, the person who's got that drive to save turned on and only about 10% again of people have that drive flipped up um, there's the drive for physical activity. This is this is a monster for about 10% of people also. They're, they're very energetic people. They work out. They post photos of themselves with their abs on Facebook. I always go, okay, that's interesting. Did it make any money? Do you think I have the desire for physical activity? No. It's not, it's not there. It's not there at all. It's it's terrible. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I, I look at it and I go, God, I could, have been, I could have been making money. I could have been helping people. I could have been influencing people. I could have been training a course in the time that that guy got to the gym and back. So so if you're going to say, oh, Kev, you'll feel great after this workout, man, I'm telling you, it's going to make you feel great. You're going to have just, you're going to just feel the adrenaline rush and the dopamine effect. And I'm like, you know, give me a different drug today. Okay, so so that's that. So so those are your, those are your drivers. We went through those at light speed. I apologize for that, but there are 16. So that's the 16, I think. I think we got them all. Great. Thank you so much for that, Kevin. That was awesome. Oh, and by the way, are you at a point where you can work out what drives a person quite quickly? Sure, but then you know, I I started to work on this 15 years ago, and we actually all this fell under a um, a little. I, I coined a term called covert hypnosis, and the idea was basically covert means subtle, and hypnosis in the sense of influence. So really, covert hypnosis is about subtle influence, and. Really, this came about because I became interested in behavioral genetics. I became fascinated by how the genes worked in connection with the behaviors and how they shaped behaviors and then how behaviors shaped um, our internal drivers and how they change and evolve over time. It's pretty cool. So that's that. Yeah, so you get to know pretty fast as to what drives people. How can we influence people in a face-to-face -face selling environment? Face-to-face -face selling, whether it's asking the girl to go out with you or to get the guy to buy your product or the girl to buy your product, you, you really want to be able to ask questions. And you want to ask questions not for the purpose just of digging up values and beliefs as, as we used to think, but we want to know what really is moving that person. Because as soon as we really know what's driving that person, we can get them to do pretty much anything we want them to do. And that's where knowing the drivers really comes in handy. So a simple example of that, and I think I, I sent you uh, um, uh, some text on this uh, for that's in a book that's going to be coming up, and I'm using part of it in uh, Coffee with Kevin Hogan this weekend. I gave an example of a teenager at school, and he's in school, and he's really terrified to give a presentation in front of the class. Um, he, he doesn't want to go to class. He wants to skip school, cut, cut class, and um, so he's thinking about not going to class, and uh, 
finally, as the time approaches, he decides, you know what, I just, I'm just not going to go to class. There's just no way. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to get laughed at. I'm lousy. I'm terrified. You know, because these people are really, this person has, has, is terrified to give a presentation, thinks people are going to laugh at him, and they probably will. So he's not going to go. So he's going to cut class. But then all of a sudden, he sits down next to, the, to our listener here today, and the listener, recognizing that he has the desire for acceptance, and it's really a powerful driver, like one of, it's one of those two or three drivers that's really pushing this, the, his buttons harder than his fear drivers. As soon as, as, the way that drivers work is only one driver can be active in any given moment. And, and this plays out in a way that's sort of um, like subroutines in a computer program. And this is exactly how it works in human behavior too. You can only really have one routine going at a time. So you can't, you can't over you can't overcome his drive of fear by saying, oh, you can do it, sport man. You'll be great. It'll be wonderful. You can do it, and you'll be so proud of yourself. And he's like, you know, I don't think so. But if, he, if you know what's driving him, you know acceptance drives him, and all of a sudden you think of oh, the class now. It's like, oh, well, you know, he's given the presentation with a couple of his buddies, and uh, he really likes the teacher. teacher likes him. He has a hard time making friends, but the friends that he does have, he's on the, the presentation uh, going to make the presentation with so you say so you simply say something like you know so so how were how will your teammates you know how will your friends feel about you going out and not doing the presentation with them today will they be okay with that and then all of a sudden he's going to have competing commitments inside of him he's going to have the driver which is terrified but it'll it'll be suppressed and the the driver to to accept to be accepted or to belong is going to be much greater and that driver will run his behavior now he will go do the presentation he will give the he'll be scared to death but he will go give the presentation because he wants to be accepted and because that's the driver. So as we learn what the drivers are, what matters to other people, a lot of times they don't even know what it is themselves, which is why you have to listen to their communication and find out. If, if you have written text, you know what, what they write, you know what's driving them. If, if you're selling products online, you, you know because they buy certain kinds of products, maybe internet marketing products. That shows you that people have the, the uh, drive for d independence, they have a drive for vengeance, uh, and probably a drive for either status or power as well. All very easy to push those buttons and probably a really strong reproductive drive too, by the way. So three of those four generally for, say, that market. Face-to-face, -face, you're listening, you're just looking at what's moving that person. you got to ask questions to find your way inside. And really, you don't talk a lot when you're influencing someone else. You say very, very little because almost everything you can say will be a trigger against one of his other drivers, against it. So instead of you talk, 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 like I'm doing right now, instead of that, you want to ask a lot of questions. You want to dig for some information and then find out what that strong driver is and then use the strong driver as a lever over the weaker drivers. How does body language come into it? Is that important? Oh, it's pretty huge. Between body language and nonverbal communication, if, we, if you're looking at nonverbal communication as you're in a restaurant, you're in a restaurant, you're meeting somebody at the restaurant, nonverbal communication is how you look at the waiter or waitress how you um, position yourself in your in the booth opposite the other person, um, how you how you manipulate your silverware, your glasses when you take a drink. All of these things are huge. And then the body language, body language is just a, is the real manifestation of what's going on inside of you and I. 
and, and the fact is, is that you and I can control our smile. We can, we can look across the, 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 at the other person. We can smile, and we can nod our head up and down. And you can sort of fake all that stuff. But there, excuse me, there's certain things that are very difficult to fake. It's, most people don't ever pay any attention to like the, the direction that their trunk, their chest is safe facing, or that they're, that really important is what direction their feet are, feet are uh, pointing. If you look where the toes of a person's foot are pointing, you can tell whether the person wants to be involved in that conversation or not. So it's really easy. If, you, if the person's toes are pointing towards you, they want to be talking to you. If they're pointing away, I guarantee you they want to go. And that's, that's as important or more important than, say, micro-expressions. So body language is really the more powerful, if we combine it with nonverbal communication in general, all of the cues that happen in, in, a, in a nonverbal sentence, the tone of the voice, the tone of the voice as opposed to the tone of the voice, okay, all, all of those things, all those pieces, all the paralanguage, all that stuff is about anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of, of the actual communication. Most people blow it, and most people have yes with their words, and then they turn it into no with their with their nonverbals. People really need to learn how to do, to to understand body language and to send good messages absolutely so you read other people's body language do you also make sure that you're quite aware of your own body language yeah the rule of thumb is is you want to be if you want to start with just dress you want to be dressed to the context you don't want to be um dressed out of the context so you, if, if everybody's wearing a jacket, you want to be wearing a jacket. If nobody's wearing a jacket, you don't want to be wearing one. If everybody's wearing blue jeans, you want to make sure you're wearing blue jeans. Acceptance is huge. It happens within a fraction of a second. And if you're going to be there for the purpose of persuasion, you have to be accepted. So the, the acceptance factor creates rapport. Rapport is almost instantaneous. People judge you just like that. It's, it's so fast. It's unbelievable. And the body language of the person, their body language, I need to know what it's saying because really what a person's words are, I, I, I can tell you, I don't tell anybody this, but I rarely pay that much attention to what somebody's saying <laughs> because it, it's, just, it's just words and words just don't matter. Once I know what's driving a person, the actual words they're using are almost sort of like um, – they're like yeast in a, in, in, a, in a dish. You know, it makes it rise, but it's like it doesn't do anything else. It, what I'm really looking for is what drives the person. So how close do they stand to me? The closer that they stand to me, the more they trust me. Depending, and that's true depending on um, the, the culture that I'm in. However, however is the person significantly – boy, I tell you what, I go everywhere, and people come, and they'll they sit right next to me. They put their face right next to mine. That's because they, they know me from TVs and DVDs, or they saw me at a live event. They feel like I'm part of their life, but that's pretty unusual. If you were to look at that between two other people meeting, then it's extremely difficult to get that kind of a, um, an instant liking, but it's really important. If the person, on the other hand, is six feet over there and they're trying to have a cons uh, conversation with me in social space, then I'll look at what's going on around them. Who's next to them? Usually the, the person standing next to them is the influencer on their communication. So I'll usually call that person over, shake their hand, and meet that person. And that brings the other person that I have to influence into the conversation with me. Things like that, the body language, the nonverbal space, the proxemics, all that stuff about distance, all that stuff matters. You have to look at it all, and you'll analyze it very much like Sherlock, in a fraction of a second. It takes time to learn all of the tools individually, to learn how to use space, to learn how you know where to position people in 
just in uh, in contrast to where you're standing or sitting at a, at a table, you have to know where that person needs to stand for you to be the most influenced and where you need to stand or sit. But once you have it down, it's really quite easy to put the pieces together and then to, to be influential with that person. And in fact, once the person's given you their attention and they're comfortable and they've come into your space and they've bent into, they've leaned forward into your conversation and they've smiled a real smile at you and not the plastic one. And all of those things, they pretty much have already bought anything and only you can screw it up at this point. Why are metaphors so powerful as a method of persuasion? Well, metaphors, there's only two ways we learn fluid concepts and metaphors. That's it. So I can either tell you, you know, four and four is eight, and I can teach you all the concepts of math and, and numbers and, and the rules and all of that stuff, or I can tell you a story, metaphor, and analogy. Those are the only two ways we really learn from another person. So the metaphor that you learn and the metaphor that you apply it's really an odd thing because we take metaphors so literally and they, they pretty much run our life. You really want that. This is why the ability to tell stories and the ability to use metaphors, you know, he was in way over his head. All of a sudden, you know that he was like a little guy in a big setting and you have a picture of whatever that means. He was in way over his head to you or, you know, you know, she was, just, you know, well, anytime you use it's a metaphor. You're creating a picture, but you're not creating the picture. You're triggering the picture that's in their mind. So you're creating a picture in their mind through triggers. And if you if you roughly know what their background is, you can select your metaphors well, and you'll you'll trigger the pictures that you want them to pull up. But metaphors being as powerful as they are, you really have to understand what their mindset is, what their culture is, what their education is. Different metaphors in England work than different metaphors here. A lot of times when you're in England, UK, you'll say, you know, mind the gap is kind of a joke in a lot of ways. You know, you'll, 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 you'll say that phrase as a humorous thing, um, as a setting, you know, hey, mind the gap, you know. Well, over here you say mind the gap and they, they think you're talking about going to a clothing store, okay? Oh. So those little cultural distinctions are, are, are monster in how people connect. So metaphors are the only way we learn. They are incredibly persuasive. Metaphors represent stories. And a story, if you're good at storytelling, if you become effective at telling stories, you become pretty much the master of any situation. If you're effective with metaphors, it takes practice. But as you get good with metaphors, there's very little else in that in the story slash metaphor slash analogy region. If you're if you're good at drawing those metaphors, you really will control the conversation. To the not not in number of words spoken, but in in the uh, in the influence value that you have with the other person. A salesperson's worst word that they hear, or you know, quite often sometimes, is no. So what other things can we do to deter a prospect, or I guess whoever it is that we're speaking to, from saying no to us? Well, I think that if the person is going to say no, the best thing you can do is say it for them. The, uh, if you're writing a piece of ad copy, say, and, and you're, writing, you're writing this 40-page document that people are going to read, it just says, because you know the person is going to be um, conflicted or you know that there's a part of them, yeah, which is exactly what it is, that doesn't want to buy and, and is trying to protect the person in some way. So you just say, and by the way, I would, you know, it just makes total sense that you don't want to go out with me. It makes total sense that you wouldn't want to buy the product or have this thing or blah, 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 whatever it is. And, and that, that's just exactly right. You should be thinking like that. And as soon as you say that, 
it shows that you understand and resistance goes down literally like a barrier, like a wall. It just falls down when you acknowledge that, that their resistance is legitimate. It's really hard to, for, <laughs> it's really hard. When you argue somebody else's point of view for them, you know, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, if you say, hey, I know what you're talking about on that liberal side, man. I mean, you guys want everybody to have, everybody should have food and clothing and health care, and you just want to make sure everybody's taken care of. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and all of a sudden the person's like, yeah, why can't every conservative understand that? And so, you know, now the person, now they're wide open. They're fair game, too. But, but, but that's how you create that atmosphere is being able to self-deprecate and to know that no in their mind is just a resistance. It's just a part, a piece of them, a subroutine that's designed to not, to not be taken advantage of or to be hurt because they say yes. When they say yes, sometimes they get hurt, just sometimes. And sometimes they get hurt, hurt. sometimes they get taken advantage of. And so all you're trying to do is like put a little pause button on the subroutine that comes out of fear. And that just means agreeing with the, the driving nature of that subroutine, which usually is fear. And so you say, hey, total good reason not to buy that car, not to buy this, you know, dog, this cat, this, this television, this book, whatever it is. You probably shouldn't in most cases. The only time you should is if A, B, or C is true. And otherwise, you may as well not even bother. If you show people like that, then they'll say, oh, okay, well, then I don't have to bother. The resistance is down. Say, but A and B are both true, and so is C, actually. So it, so it might. And that's when people will ask you a question. As soon as they ask you a question, now they're, we're back to the teenager in high school where they have two subroutines running in their brain at the same time, and now they're trying to see which subroutine should get turned on, which would be, say, the drive for something else, or if they're going to let that fear driver continue to run. So that's the answer there. Do we do things any differently when we're communicating or selling on the phone? Yeah, because there is no um, visual component, it, it's, it's a lot harder to, to sell on the telephone. I ran a, a several um, offices, telemarketing offices, years ago when telemarketing was okay in the United States. And uh, you learn a lot about how important tone of voice is, inflection, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. It becomes it's great training for the rest of your life. People who sell on the phone learn to use their, their voice and their tone in a way to capture attention, to hold it, and that skill translates over into writing copy and into being really good in front of a group of people. Because if you can, if you can become comfortable with people on the telephone and build that rapport with the person on the, on the telephone, because really the rapport building is the same, but it's more difficult because they can't see you. So there's an extra distrust factor once you're on the telephone or, or on Skype, you know, or, or anything like that, where, where it's just two voices. Um, it's all about the perception of me that I have of you, Joey, or the person who's listening. And if I think, if I anticipate on the telephone, if I anticipate you to be friendly and helpful and uh, compassionate, you probably will be friendly, helpful, and compassionate. And if I anticipate you're going to be hostile and vengeful and angry and irritable, you probably will be because those two um, projections, those are very different projections, and they both come out of me, and because it comes out of me only in my tone of voice, my speaking pace, and then the number of words I'm going to say, and, and then the content, of course, well, 
I control what's going on in your brain through my expectation, which is, which is heard in my tone of voice by you. So selling on the telephone basically teaches you how to have control of your, your, um, your appearance on the telephone and how that goes into the person's mind. That expectation that you have on the phone is very much like it is face-to-face, -face, but it's more so, where the telephone is a controlling factor, the control factor is that expectation that you have of other people and how you really believe they're going to respond to you. It's not like a, it's not like a secret, you know, or, or, or a um, metaphysical thing. It's basically like, well, of course Joey's going to buy the product today. Why wouldn't he be crazy if he didn't have whichever product we were talking about? And then if, if I really believe that, then it's... It's got to be that certain and obvious. Just like I'm going to the store and I'm going to pick up groceries and I'll be back in 20 minutes. You don't sit there and think, gosh, do you think Kevin's really going to make the store? Do you think he'll make it? Do you think he'll get back? Do you think he'll actually go and buy the things he said he was going to buy? No, I just said I'm going to the grocery store and I'm going to pick up some things and I'll be back in 20 minutes. That's, when you have that exact sense coming across through your voice, whether it's on the telephone, Skype, in a, in a video that you're doing for the public or whether you're in front of an audience, when that level of certainty is there, I'm going to the store, i got to pick up a couple of things, I'll be back in 20, 25 minutes, I'll see you then. Okay? When you have that level of certainty, it shows through in your voice, it's there, and it's just, it's just sets people at ease, makes them comfortable, makes them almost completely your beck and call or um, <laughs> at your mercy, if you will, because when you have that level of certainty about something, it's just going to happen. It will happen. There's tons of research that goes into expectancy and the vocal commands. And how do we influence with just the written word only? Is the same stuff still applied there? Yeah, it does. The uh, written word is different, but, but there are similar components. So, for example, if I'm writing copy, and I write a lot of copy every week. I, well, not every week. Every couple of weeks I write copy. And um, I have copy that's as much as 8, 10, 12 years old that I used to sell programs or courses a decade ago that continue to draw and do hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe million dollars, I don't know, but for sure hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're consistent year in and year out. It's just the copy works all the time. And, and I think the reason is, is that people who become familiar with this person. There's, there's two ways that people will respond to copy. Their first filter is their familiarity with you. If people are familiar with you, they'll read your copy one way. If they're unfamiliar with you, they'll read your copy another way. So literally, we write, we, I write two sets of copy that other people posted on the internet. <laughs> I, write, I write copy A for the people who are familiar with Kevin Hogan. They read coffee with Kevin Hogan, which is our easing. Um, they go to the website regularly. And they also write copy for people who have never seen me, who have no familiarity with me whatsoever. Because the we discovered early on the style of copy is very different for both people. If I were to write copy for the public and give it to people who are familiar with me, they would think I had deep and lost my mind. They'd think, God, Kevin. Just trying way too hard there, okay? <laughs> Whereas what I, you know, really. So, yeah. so when, you're, when your audience is familiar with you, you want to write as if they're familiar with you. So instead of hyping something and making it the best or something like that, you just tell them, okay, here's what you got to do. You want to get this, and I'll literally tell people, I'll either say, eh, it's pretty good, or and every other time I'll say, oh, you know, it's actually quite brilliant, and 
you know, it, it's accepted. The person knows. I wouldn't be saying that if if it wasn't out there to the public. If they're not familiar with you, you've got to obviously do all the things that you were taught in copywriting 101, which is build trust and you know utilization of endorsements that are real and all of those things. The more real that you look to the person that's reading it, the more likely they are to buy it. And that's really what that's really what makes the difference is that certainty that they have, and that's all projected through you, through how you write. can't teach it in 40 minutes on a conversation, but the basic concept is, is you're going to the grocery store. Of course you have to have this. How crazy would you be not to have product X? Because if you don't have product X, you're not going to be able to do A, B, and C. You're going to sit there spinning with your wheels forever, and obviously it's just not going to work for you. So make sure that you have product X. And just like do it in a month and don't do it for scarcity's sake and don't do it for urgency's sake. Get it now because why would you want to wait a month, you know, before you get that cute girl over there? It just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And then all of that shows through in your copywriting. It does. And that, that, that certainty, once again, is what people grasp onto. It's not just the words. It's how sure they are of how, how, that, how that fear subroutine has dropped. Will it drop and be taken over by another subroutine or will it remain the number one subroutine running. As long as the fear subroutine is running and you haven't addressed it and you haven't put it at ease, well, then you have, you have no chance of making the sale. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this interview with me today. And as you mentioned just a second ago, there's no way that you could teach everything that you know in just 40 minutes. That's quite a lot of stuff. Uh, where can we go to get more of your information? Well, a couple of things. Maybe uh, if, if people want to look at the 16 drivers that we talked about at the beginning of the call, they could go to coverthypnosis.net, coverthypnosis.net, and the the book ebook that is is there is um, inclusive and comprehensive in dealing with the 16 core drivers. It would probably behoove everybody to take a peek at. The other thing would be every week I release um, something called Coffee with Kevin Hogan. It's an easing, pretty popular in the in the business world, in the marketing sales world, uh, world influence. Uh, we have some of the biggest names in the world. It's pretty cool to see who who's on our list, and uh, and they read it because they find. That stuff that works as far as influence and communication and getting people to say yes and comply with what they need done. So it's pretty pretty great tool for people. Just go to kevinhogan.com. On the right-hand side, typically somewhere in that bar over there is a place for people to subscribe. And the thing about subscribing is you can unsubscribe if I happen to oversell my, my case. Great. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a couple of minutes to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate and uh, be grateful for your support. And finally, Kevin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great to be with you and all your listeners today. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.